Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm Danielle Crittenden. And I'm Christina Hoff Summers. And today we're going to talk about aging. In a positive way. It's not all bad. It's not all downhill. No matter what face cream you're using or what your mirror is telling you. Or how young and and, and superior you are to us elderly people. Right. Apparently, yes, 20-somethings. According to our guest who's coming in, Jonathan Rausch, who has just written a book called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, apparently the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings are much more depressed I don't want to say depressed. No, depressed is wrong. You're right. Um, Stressful and... Less uh, happy than 50, 60, and 70-year-olds. That's incredible. And less happy because as you get older, it starts after your... So it starts in your 50s. His theory, and he's now... has masses of data for this, that there's a kind of curve of orientation. And when you're younger, it's harder for you to be happy. And by the time you're in your mid-40s, you're more successful, things are working out well, and yet it still eludes you. You have a what's kind of a crisis, but he says it's actually normal. And then as you come out... Kind of a massive pivot. Yes, you pivot towards happiness and well-being, and it comes each and each decade. And I've heard this from my mother and, and older other people older than me, that each decade gets better. Well, I just remember hating my 20s and telling myself during my 20s to remember when I was older, that I didn't like my 20s because it was so, it was so terrifying. There were so many unsettled things, like, let alone, you know, are you going to meet someone? Are you right. going to get married? Everything was a mystery. Kids? How is your career going to go? I mean, it was, you have all the energy and, and, you know, gorgeous skin of being young, but you're just, I was just constantly riddled with doubts and fears and anxiety. I, I was, I was always in a dither. I'm not that way now. (laughs) No, Christina, (laughs) you're never in a dither now. (laughs) Different dither. No, but it gets better and better. And he's now has, you know, found the science and the, and it's just been, it's been so great. I loved reading his book. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, he's given a gift to all of us and we're excited to have him on. So let's, let's talk about it with Jonathan. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note, don't worry, be happy. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. It's so good to be here. You ready to... two good friends. Oh, I thought you were going to say good looking yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though we're over 50. I'm, I'm, oh, okay, ageism, but I, never mind. I am gay. I am your first openly gay guest. So I've, I think that's right. I've got to plant a flag for my tribe here. But you're not a fabulous gay. Let's just. Oh, I am. I'm you're so unfabulous, despite your best efforts to make me <laughs> we fabulous. We tried. I, we tried. We wanted. It's you hopeless. To, but you have written a fabulous, fabulous book, The Happiness Curve. Not least because it says something so counterintuitive that life does get better after fifty. Not that any of us would know. Not that any of us would know. <laughs> And also quite different from many of your other books, all of which are beautifully written, especially your book about coming out as a gay man. I remember that came out, and it was sort of both incredibly beautifully written, but so thoughtful and and Denial, yes. And now's my opportunity to thank you in public for shepherding that book through to publication. You were the editor and the inspirer and the muse. Well, I don't... I can't take that much credit because I was just thrilled and I was at Huffington Post at the time and I was just so excited to get 
that kind of content into print. So. Uh, yeah, this one is as different as totally it could so. be, except in one important way, which is both books are about coming out of the closet. Is it easier to come out as gay these days or as 60? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering. <laughs> it's definitely, I'll, I'll put a slight spin on that, Christine. It is definitely, it's always going to be really hard to come out as gay, but there's now a whole model for it. There's tons of social support. And if you're going through that, you kind of know what you're going through in their path to follow. But if you're where I was at 45, which is hitting all of your life goals out of the park and feeling dissatisfied and ungrateful and wondering why you can't feel better about that, there's no support for that. There's no template for that. People are ashamed of it. They're hiding it. They're in the closet. That's making it worse. And a lot of what this book is about is explaining to people the science and the life stories of why this is a completely normal, natural, healthy transition, not something to be ashamed of. So I'm trying to bring midlife malaise out of the closet. In some degree, I, I thought you were likening malaise that we talk about or feel about malaise the way many people used to feel about depression, that they might be living otherwise, you know, good lives, successful lives, happy lives, but they get depressed and you have this feeling, why am I feeling this way when I don't have any reason to? And that's something you look extensively at the book, that this malaise will hit even the most successful people. Especially the most successful people. So this book was full of surprises. One of them, which we'll get to, is that the emotional peak of life for most people is not middle age. It's not youth. It's 60s and 70s and sometimes even later. Another big surprise is midlife discontent is very often literally about nothing. And we can talk about that, but it's literally, in many cases, it's not because of stuff happening in your life. It's because of things that your brain is doing and because of values changes and because of how you feel about those changes. You become unhappy about being unhappy. That makes you even more unhappy. And yeah, so that often especially hits people who don't have other sources of turbulence in your life. You know? and, I, and I think a lot of young people think that you almost feel sorry for people. They're getting old. And I remember being so surprised when my mother, who's now 94, told me in her 70s, she said, every decade got better. She said she was much happier in her 60s than she'd been in her 50s, happier. And so now the 90s, <laughs> I think she might even say it now, but it may be because she's just, you know, a little... I interviewed a 94-year-old who said the best is right now. She had cancer at the time. She had a She'd been through left everything. She had had lost grandchildren. She'd lost friends, whole bridge. Yeah, but what happens as people age is their values change. And yes. it turns out their values change faster than their bodies. And that actually gives people some emotional protection from the physical abilities that we lose. So as your physical immune system is collapsing, your emotional immune system is stronger. It gets, it, it gets stronger. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it, Christine, I actually. True. I never use quite that analogy. But yeah, that's right. As we get older, we age away from valuing and chasing status, ambition, achievement, ticking all the boxes in life, which we're very focused on in youth and middle age, but which is not satisfying. It's a hamster wheel. And as we age through that in middle age, which is one of the causes of this malaise that happens, we switch to valuing relationships, the people we most care about, family, community, giving back, connectedness, which are much better sources of happiness for humans, much more lasting and much deeper and richer and those actually become easier as, as we age. Describe what you mean by the happiness curve and the actual surprising science behind it. Well, that's a big question. I, um, I love the part of the book that was like a detective story. <laughs> <laughs> people and, the, and what they discovered and then people 
it was very controversial and they couldn't get it published. And then they did. Yeah. Part of the fun of this book was the scientific detective story aspect, which I don't really get much of a chance to talk about. And people want to go straight to the part about, okay, so why don't I feel better about my life and how do I fix it? Which is, of course, the, the take-home lesson. But no one expected to find the happiness curve. It popped out of big data that economists were running on happiness around the world. It first turns up in the 90s and then begins to firm up in the early 2000s. But what they were doing was they had these immense data sets from countries all over the world, millions and millions of people, and they're asking about life satisfaction, not like mood. This isn't cheerfulness. This is how satisfied are you with your life? How fulfilled do you feel? And then they were factoring out all of the variables and looking at them one by one. So how does education affect that, marriage, health, income, age? Well, they didn't expect to find that age would have an effect all of its own on happiness because, you know, it would depend on what's going on at that age, right? Wrong. It's it turns out... effect and a positive one. You know, age has a U-shaped effect all by itself, regardless of what else is going on, on average, as you age, you're effective age is to reduce your life satisfaction and it'll bottom out in the U.S. around age 50 and then start rising again. Now, that's just the effective age. That gets to your point earlier. If lots of other stuff is going on, you know, divorce or cancer or a great new job, it will overwhelm the age effect in many cases. But age has this U-shaped effect. And for someone like me who is doing perfectly well in middle age, nothing to complain what about. What was happening with you at this time? So I was doing great in midlife. You know, I had successfully established a long-term relationship. I had good friendships. My career was doing fine. I had plenty of money in the bank. My health was good. Everything seemed right. You won a National Magazine Award at this point. So that's when I figured out that, that I had some kind of really weird thing going on, because no matter how good things were, in my early 40s, I realized I was just feeling dissatisfied all the time, and I was having these weird voices saying I should throw away this life and do something worthwhile, which made zero sense. So then I'm 45, and I win the biggest award in magazine journalism, the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for magazines. And if anything is going to make me feel satisfied with life, this is going to be it. And sure enough, it did. I finally felt that inner glow of contentment for about 10 days. And then the demon voices creep back in and soon rise to their full volume that I haven't done anything worthwhile with my life. And that's when I realized what I'm up against here is not about the structure of my life. It's something internal. I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know what was going on. I wouldn't know that until a few years later when I discovered this brand new science about the happiness curve. Most of us in that situation would not have had that wonderful, almost emotional, intellectual self-discipline to analyze yourself in that way, like to separate what well, my yeah, life is I would is have good. Like, taken... Mood stabilizers, Zoloft. Like, well, it I was, it was, it was depression or something. Well, it you, did. It felt like I, at the time, I thought of it as a kind of mild depression, but very mild in the sense that it wasn't chronic and I didn't have any trouble functioning or enjoying myself or getting out of bed. It was more like, especially in the mornings, nothing I achieved or did seemed to fulfill my need for status, which was completely weird. So at one level, yeah, I was kind of analyzing it because that's the sort of hyper-intellectual person I am. But analyzing it didn't actually help with the situation at the time because I thought, it's kind of like what I thought when I was gay. You know, there must be something wrong with me here. This isn't, this isn't right. And I, and I wasn't telling anyone. I was isolated. I wasn't telling my husband, Michael, because, you Who know. Who is a fabulous gay. 
Yeah, who's a fabulous guy and a great dancer. And I wasn't telling you, Danielle or David, because I can't expect you to be sorry for me in my situation. Well, I would have thought you were depressed. Just kind of a little depressed, but it's really, what I say in the book is this is not a mood disorder. This is a contentment disorder. This is an existential crisis. Yeah, it's more like a malaise or a slump. But yeah, it's got some overlap with depression. But you wouldn't want to go to a doctor. No. You You want to feel better about your life, you know, just your achievements. We're talking to Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. You wrote this beautifully... And the book begins with a series of paintings in the National Gallery depicting the I've walked by of those. Life. I went back after I'm I read go, this I want to go. I'm going <laughs> to look at them. But you've seen them, right, Christine? I've seen them, but I've never stood and, I mean, I love coal, but I just, those particular paintings, I haven't focused on them. And now I will. Describe them a little bit. I just want to quote you something that you wrote to exactly what you were saying, that it's not depression, it's malaise, but you don't know what it is. And that led you to come up with a happiness equation, which you can also tell us about. <laughs> Time matters. You you wrote, the bend in the river when the past and its disappointments are behind you, and yet you don't have expectations for the future. No one sees around the bend in the river. And that's really the base of the curve, right? That you had come to this point of success, but you didn't know what was coming in the future. Yeah, the science of the thing is really fascinating. And I mean, we, none of us do, of I course, mean, but that sense of not our, anticipating. With our cocktails with here on mansplainers, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that's what we're it's doing today. temporary mansplainers. <laughs> temporary mansplainers. I don't know how in the weeds you want to get, but the way the science of this works is really interesting because it's kind of a temporal trap because... The things we want when we're really young are status, ambition. This is true, by the way, equally of men and women. There's no, everyone's looked for a difference. There's none to be found. We want social connections. We want status, get established in life. We want to tick all these boxes, but we're not wired to be satisfied. We want even more status once we've achieved status. So after 20 years of that, by our mid-40s, we think nothing will ever make us satisfied. So we're disappointed in the past because somehow we're not as happy as we expected to be. We're pessimistic about the future. And that really, really, really feels bad. And it doesn't really start to change until we start relinquishing some of our expectations about always being happy. And no one sees that coming. So, But do we do that naturally? Yeah, we seem to do that naturally. Well, a few things happen. Our expectations change. We start to realize that you know, looking for the perfect job or the perfect marriage is never going to make us fulfilled or happy. But our values also change, which is really important. We start focusing more on the relationships that we want to invest in and really care about and as we realize that our years also. are getting shorter. We become just grateful. Yeah. <laughs> we get less, know. yeah. We become, well, it becomes easier to become grateful because yeah. our values naturally shift toward yeah. connecting with people and investing in people and away from achievement. And then the third thing that happens, all going on at once, is our brains actually change. So there's neuroscience on this. Older brains are less regretful. They are better at balancing multiple conflicting emotions. Less anxious, prone to anxiety. Less prone to stress. Less prone to stress, even given the same stimulus. And they're more positive. The stereotype of a bitter older person, totally wrong. 
older brains yeah, respond. Yeah, you dispelled the cranky old man. Yeah, though I aspire to be one. I kind of <laughs> think too. they're cool. I, 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 but, I, <laughs> but yeah, we get actually more positive as we get older. I'm and that's those are brain changes, and you can see them in other primates. So all of these things are going on and changing us as we age. Is it all right if we include in these connections animals that you get very interested in dogs? Or is that <laughs> asking for a friend? <laughs> One of the people I interviewed in this book, full of interviews, I talk about the science, but those who read the book will find tons of texture from many people that I interviewed and surveyed. And yeah, one theme is, for example, one woman in middle age began to care for birds mm -hmm. that had been found and abandoned, crows, for example, and began discovering a kind of depth there and a meaning, which she would not have seen in that activity when she was 28 and, you know, wanted to be a hotshot lawyer or whatever. And you wouldn't take the time. You'd just be so busy. You'd be busy, but also it would kind of feel trivial. And one thing I kept hitting again and again that was so interesting is that as people moved around the happiness curve to the upswing, they're changing in ways that, you know, you'd think you'd feel like relinquishing your ambition to get a Nobel Prize or be Mozart would, would make life emptier or more hollow. But in fact, people felt like, you know, I'm learning to appreciate the things I can actually do, the relationships I have. For one person, it was making jewelry. For another, it was rescuing birds. Mm -hmm. And they were experiencing these things with an added depth and almost kind of Zen-like wisdom that was emerging. It's just a point when you were talking about the biological changes in the brain. It's similar to what adolescence goes through, it sounds like. It's like a second adolescence where, where the brain is still, and adolescence still developing, and, and a lot of their behavior is just through this chemical changes in maturation, and suddenly they come yeah. out the other end of adolescence, and they're less angry. And, <laughs> and you're not the first to say it. That's right. It's not, of course, nothing's quite like adolescence yeah. when there's so much change going yeah. on. But until quite recently in the world of psychology, there was no real field of adult development because mm -hmm. it was assumed that once the brain was fully formed, age 22 or whatever, that's that. You know, the rest is just stuff that happens to you. Not true at all. The brain continues to change throughout life in ways that often surprise us. And this is one of those ways. It was assumed it would be a, a steady decline. But, but it's me, not. Let me ask you, because I, I didn't find this addressed thoroughly in the book. But you say women aren't different from men, and yet, let's face it, our bodies don't improve, and just as our happiness curve is going up, everything else is falling. <laughs> did, you, did you find, I mean, I guess if you're, the struggle to retain, you know, I guess the female midlife crisis is plastic surgery as opposed to the male sports car, but what did you find with women just trying to cope with their own uniquely female struggles? One of the big surprises, Danielle, people really fight me on this, and I did too, which is, it must be different. Like, women have menopause, mm. hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that do it? Well, so you look at the big data, huge data sets all over the world. No difference between men and women in the effect of aging on happiness. There are other differences, income, employment, all that stuff, but not aging. And then you look at, I surveyed almost 300 people, men and women about their lives. I saw no consistent differences. And then I interviewed men and women. I found no consistent differences. So then I asked, so what accounts for this instinctive feeling we have that midlife malaise, midlife crisis, whatever we call it, is gender? I think the reason for that, I'd be curious what, what you guys think, 
is that historically men have been in a much stronger position to express kind of act out dissatisfaction in midlife. That wasn't something women were really allowed to do or had the independence or means to do. Hmm. And that's why if you go online and you look up memes for and images for midlife crisis, it's mostly men with sports cars and bimbos. There are only a few images for women and they do involve the horrified look in the mirror on seeing wrinkles. But I think I think that's where that comes the, from. The only it's... one horrified look on the <laughs> <laughs> only one. <laughs> well, I think women have I think what happens and I can vouch for it, but I remember reading about becoming going into your fifties as a woman in advance and how a lot freer you were supposed to feel. And you're now yourself and you just have a greater level of, of acceptance. So Well women tend to have more friends than men. And men age more quickly, I mean, in terms of their vulnerability to illness. Mm-hmm. So maybe it all evens out. Well, know? it's it's true. You do, and I guess this is what you're saying, there's no gender difference on average. finding more self-confidence. But I think you're right. Like, I think women seem to be able to take more pleasure if they have grandchildren and surround themselves. Yeah, sure. And, and no one's saying there are no gender differences mm-hmm. between men and women. There are all kinds of gender differences. But what we're talking about here is specifically the effect of aging on happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I just want to say what I found so exhilarating in reading this book is that we fairly recently, as recently as, you know, last two generations, live considerably longer than previous generations. I mean, my grandmother and great-grandmother, they were, they were very old. I mean, they lived, one of them lived to be 80. Both of them did, actually, but they were ancient. ancient. And all the men were gone. And um, now we're healthier and we're living longer. Yeah, and Joe Biden's going to run for president at He's age, what, run. 77, yeah. 78? Maybe we'll have the whole group back. We'll have Bernie <laughs> and, and Hillary and <laughs> Mr. Trump. So this is such good news because at the time where the life, where life expectancy is longer, we're getting these great years where we're emotionally more prepared to be happy. This is, to a me, gift. you know, there's a lot of good things for me personally about having done this book and this research. And one is it, it helped me as a human being to better understand the contours of my life. And I so wish I had had a book like this to read when I was 38 and 39, 40, starting to feel this malaise. If someone had told me this is a natural, normal it gets better. It gets better. It's not midlife crisis. It's midlife transition. It's a little like adolescence. But another yeah. was we have so much to feel anxious about right now, yet humanity in the developed world, like in the United States at this minute, is getting the single greatest gift in the entire history of the human species, 15 to ultimately 20 additional years of healthy life at what is the emotional peak in life. I mean... What could possibly be better than that if we use it, if we seize the opportunity? Please join the Femsplainers. Yes, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the Femsplainer Podcast. And find the Femsplainers on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. And learn all about us at Femsplainers.com. Thank you. Yeah, Femsplainers. So then, how do you seize that opportunity? Let's talk about, if you're listening and in this curve right now, what are the best things you can do? So, are we talking about best things to do 
for yourself or best things to do for your friends and loved ones? For yourself. So this is you as we should get to friends and loved ones because that's a huge part of the story. That may be for me the biggest single takeaway of my three years thinking and writing. So for ourselves, if you find yourself in this kind of explicable, inexplicable malaise, how do you deal with it? There's a bunch of stuff in the book about that, but but a few of the more important ones is number one. Usually, step don't leap. Now, people in middle age need change, like anyone else. But if you're like me or other people who experience this, you may feel the urge to just kind of throw the whole deck of cards into the air, build yourself a new life, start over. Move to Paris. Move to Paris. Now, that's how midlife transition can slip into midlife crisis because people misattribute what's going on and what's actually an effective age that they'll just carry with them to Paris. Wherever you go, there you are. Right, there you are. (laughs) So that can become a serious mistake. So... The good advice here is step, don't leap. Change is good, but make it logical. Make it incremental. Build on your strengths and connections. So I shouldn't sell my house and move downtown. Well, you can sell your house and move downtown, but have a plan. Do it in a way that makes sense for you. Asking for a friend again? (laughs) Just for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Don't throw the cards up in the air. Build on your strengths and kind of move laterally. Consult with people to make sure it makes sense, have a plan B. So it's a time to be careful. So that's one thing. Another is don't get isolated because that makes it much worse. That's like being gay for me, you know, being thinking you can't tell anyone about this because if you tell your spouse, he or she will, will panic and want you to go to a doctor or will say, you know, you're having midlife crisis, oh my God. And you don't tell your friends because you don't want to seem weak and vulnerable because, you know, I'm, I'm master of the universe. I've achieved X, Y, and Z. Isolation yeah. makes it worse. So, so okay, find I want to just challenge to... that a little bit. Of course, you need friends and all that. But when I was young, I did. I if I were home alone or something, I wouldn't be happy, and I'd call, always call friends, friends, friends. And now I like to be isolated, you know, and because I have so much to do and so many interests. And so, so if something happens and I'm I manage to have a weekend or something, and I have nothing to do. I find I enjoy a lot more now in my age, which will go unmentioned, then I... Yeah, yeah, I'm making a different point, actually. I'm an introvert, too. I find being alone is kind of a euphoric drug, actually. I I almost can't get enough time alone. Okay. But I'm making a a different point, which is people feel ashamed specifically about being dissatisfied in midlife because they don't feel entitled to it. They feel like it's a first world problem. And so that's what they hide. They hide that aspect of their lives. Sense of shame heightens it even more. I see. You're, and you're talking about? Talking about find people that you can share this with. Now, that's where other people come in. A huge part of the puzzle is we expect people in midlife to be at their strongest and most resourceful. And we have this picture, you know, midlife is when you achieve the most and you're in your prime and you're on top of the world and you've got all those responsibilities. But yeah, you're you're dealing with the aging parents and the adolescent kids and the career. We're trying to give advice to the now young adult kids. Yeah, right. Exactly. Everyone expects you to be just right on top of it. In fact, midlife is a vulnerable time. It is this time of transition. And As a society, instead of making people ashamed of feeling this way because they're supposed to be having the best time of their life or the strongest time of their life, we need to do way better at providing support and guidance, not therapy, but support and guidance for people in this stage of life so it becomes safe to talk about so we can bring it out of the closet. That's why it's like denial. You help wonder publish, if we've Daniel. Just, it's like a... If these ideas, is the, uh, the, the book was very persuasive and it made me think that 
eventually we're going to start organizing the social world a little more consistent with our nature. So you look at the way neighborhoods are. And I've always thought it was a mistake to have the way the suburbs are arranged. And I love Jane Jacobs and, you know, reading about city planning and just what a difference it makes if you have porches and community and those, those relationships you describe in your neighborhood. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. And what, you know, you, in once in a while you'll get a neighborhood like that, but often you don't. And I'm thinking if it, we're going to start thinking about ways in which they're kind of effortlessly, organically. It's already happening. Communities, yeah, it is. Yeah, another I very I thought the millennials were going to focus on that. They seem Well, to... actually, you know, baby boomers are already starting because... The millennials are too young. They're not thinking you about it. You know, once it. a... <laughs> well, they're just the way they go to the office, although I don't know. Once upon a time, you know, Maybe that was imposed on them. 65 was really old, and you were probably about to die. So, did education <laughs> at the start of life, and then you worked, and then you retired at 65, and you were probably dead soon after. So, we build institutions to do all that. Well, that doesn't fit anymore, and baby boomers and millennials are going to live another 20 healthy years at 65, and they're going to be in the most pro-social period of life. We're still going to be here, they, making trouble for you guys. But, but we're <laughs> going to be moving away from changing the world and moving toward giving back friends and community. And we're there not... there be like sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the old age? Home? No, no, there won't. But what there's going to be is people are going to want to find ways to contribute to mentoring and to community. They want what are called less hard jobs where, you know, you're not putting in the 45 and 50 hour weeks, but you're, you're helping in the workplace. Nonprofits can be volunteer. But we're already seeing the creation in corporations and civil society of these roles for people to reposition themselves and have so-called encore careers later in life. And as you say, it's happening organically. But neither of you will be surprised to hear that the lagging social force is government and programs like public pension programs and public education programs. Those are still designed around society as it was 50 and 60 years ago. So that's a big challenge. Social well, Security. Yeah, Social Security. Should probably come later. I yeah, mean, and we need to have to stuff like people talk about what if a 45-year-old who wants to transition to a different kind of role could take a gap year and subtract sort of one year's Social Security for education at age 45 or 50. So we ought to be able to do stuff like that. Well, that's another thing to go back to, Christina, what you were saying actually about those sort of the millennial and their collective we work kind of spaces. And now that's going into housing as they stay single longer and they share apartment complexes now that are just single rooms around community spaces. Maybe, Jonathan, you came across this, but I saw there was some sort of program where old people, older people were living with children in, in, or coming to school. I think a nursery school hmm. was held in the same complex as, a, as an old age home. And it was this wonderful opportunity to bring basically a, a building full of grandparents to these kids who were going to daycare every day. It's a great example. We're seeing yeah. more and more of that. It's still very embryonic, but you know, AARP is interested in that kind of program. And I heard about, for example, out in the Bay Area, there's a rabbi who's inventing a bar mitzvah service for people in their 60s and beyond. Oh um, my goodness. It's never too late. It's uh, never, I well, that's right. It's, <laughs> it's never too late. So some of the social segregation around aging will start to gradually break down. And the discrimination, which is 
That's a big problem. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is on record as having said, young people are just smarter. Now he then because he's a young person. Yeah, you know. You know, we we said (laughs) he then then walked it back. He said, "Never mind, I misspoke." But we all know he didn't misspeak, and that our society assumes older people are past their prime, and they're slow, and they don't pick up new technology, and they're curmudgeonly. The evidence is all none of that is true. In fact, older people in the workforce make younger people who they work with more productive. Are you going to say they're better drivers? Uh, uh, that does no. decline. An old man with yeah. a cap. But we'll have we'll have self driving cars. But that right, exactly. No, I want I want to be an old lady with a car. I'm going to get a big car. <laughs> I'm not going to care. Mow I'm down. Gonna, I'm going to drive out of my my driveway full speed back. You know. <laughs> anyway, I have a question about Simone de Beauvoir. Did you are you aware of her book Coming of Age? No. After she wrote her great book, The Second Sex, she wrote a similar book on age. It's mm-hmm. lost. Of course. Yes, she did. And I read mm-hmm. it years ago. I went back. I couldn't find it, but I found enough of it online that I then realized half of it is just sort of a Marxist screed. She blames everything on capitalism. But the other half, she described, and she, I guess at the time, she felt she was getting old. One of the things I never forgot, she said, it's not something that first happens to you. It's that you become aware by looking at your friends or someone you haven't seen for a while. And it's usually someone else who lets you know you're old. And it's like a young person, the first time somebody says, ma'am, and you're 19 or 20 or 20 <laughs> or something, and you think, what, me? Man? You know? And I think as you get 60 or 65 or something, and then you, you know, realize that you are considerably older than the people around you. And can be liberating. You know, for me, it's just surprising because I don't feel that age. But I mean, I, I just Does it don't... bother you? No, no, it does. I don't really Would mind. You? I don't even mind the ageism. In fact, I have some old age jokes I don't mind telling. <laughs> in, in thinking about your satisfaction with life overall, would you trade whatever decade you're in now for your 30s? Well, I, only if I could go back with everything I know now. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, the 30s. Take it or leave it. The 20s and oh, the 30s it, Youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. It's true. And uh, no, I would not. So far, I was a mother through the 30s. That part was great, but it was exhausting. You just wouldn't Um, want to go back to all the work. Don't worry, be happy now. Don't worry. Be happy. We're talking to Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And 60's not bad either. (laughs) You know what I would never want to go back and do? I was thinking, reading your book, and I fortunately didn't have a crisis, but some some malaise that you described, I can remember. But then where I was really unhappy was in elementary school and high school, just being trapped in those buildings all day long. I dreaded going and being, I grew up in Los Angeles, and the schools looked like prisons. Maybe all schools do. And they in Public schools? Yeah. It was University High School in L.A., I went back and it did look like a prison, and it was one of the nicer ones. I just felt so I would not want to go back. And I feel sorry for kids who are still in school because it was, you had no control. They're less prison like now. I think they've There's, become happier. And we, and, they, and we had huge classes and just they're constrained. People all writing articles in the 70s about why are our schools built like prisons. So, one of the most satisfying jobs I've had recently involved working with. Millennials, that I was definitely the senior citizen in the 
office. And it was a very funky office with, you know, those mini ping pong tables and cool lounge spaces. But I found that if I just made fun of my, you know, age to them, like, obviously, I don't understand that, you know, I'm old. Once you got through that threshold, the relationship became very symbiotic because they learned to rely on me for the knowledge and experience that I had that they didn't have. And it, for me, it just brought me, it kept me up on technology. It kept me in, you know, sort of youthful culture. And I, I just, I couldn't have enjoyed it more. My experience with millennials, though more limited than yours, has been that they are much better than our generation was about understanding the value of oh, having older people I know what around. you're And, they, they, and they they're like, nicer to their parents. They like being mentored. They're comfortable mm-hmm. with that. Like my generation was all about, we're going to be different. We're going to do it right. <laughs> you people. So I've, I've had the same kinds of, of good experiences. And also remember, the world is changing. In, in the Sun City years, you all know Sun City. That's a retirement community outside Leisure Phoenix, World. Where I grew up I Leisure World. It... You know, the model was you're 65, you get off the planet. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be around millennials. Go you're going to go play golf in a retirement community where 70 is young. Mm-hmm. So that's changing. That goes back to what, Christine, you were saying earlier. Organically, older people are not just going quietly because they have a lot to offer and, and society has a lot, a lot of their skills that they can use. So they're around more and they're, they're being more integrated. And that's, all of this is great stuff. You know, the, the news here is, is mostly really, really good news. Well, a f- friend of my daughter's worked in an old age home, I think in Florida, and he said, I haven't seen that much sex going on since college. <laughs> that apparently they're like rabbit hutches without the procreation. But um, go back to the. I don't know. I want to give your viewers the name of this particular. <laughs> I've heard it. Facility. I've, I've heard it in other places now too. Um, so it, that gives even one in hope. memory care. In memory, above care. all, in memory. In memory care. Care. That's right. That particular aspect of the brain is not affected by Alzheimer's. Other parts are, but other parts are, but. <laughs> Go back to something you said about it being a first world problem, because you looked at this research everywhere, and how much does your circumstances or culture potentially contribute to this, Melinda? Uh, it, it does. Um, there's people, it's hard to put this across because it gets complicated, but lots of things affect your sense of well-being, and aging, time is only one of them. So you're more apt to feel the effects of time if there's not a lot of other difficult stuff going on in your life. But if there is, that'll certainly affect your life satisfaction. So it's not good to be super poor and not know where food is coming from or to be unemployed or to be unhealthy or to be in a low trust environment, which some societies are. There's a whole literature now looking at happiness around the world and and in different countries. And it finds America is more happy than most, but not like Scandinavia, which is like last time I looked, I think six or seven of the top 10 happiest countries were in Scandinavia because it's high trust, low poverty, lots of social capital. So depression was really high, though, also. Just, that's just because they're suicide, honest. Not depression. Suicide. They're just oh. and honest. They, and <laughs> the unhappy ones just take themselves out of it. In the Catholic you're, countries. You're laughing, but that appears to be true. The, the worst thing of all well, is okay, to be depressed that. in a happy environment. Because then you're not just depressed; you're really weird. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's not that's that's not a good thing. I, I read that in Denmark, you, they give you uh, tax breaks if you live within a certain number of miles of your family, your parents. So there's they're encouraging hmm. people 
to stay near their families. And it's a way to increase happiness and, you know, to take care of one another. Social capital. That's what most of, on the list of things that make people happy, money beyond a certain minimal point is not very important. And status is not really very durable. What really matters to making people happy, human beings happy, is good, intimate social ties, a trusting environment with people who support and love us. That's the ballgame. Do you worry with what social media and our time spent on machines is is, Yeah, everyone worries about that. I'm not an expert on it, but I've talked to people who know a lot about it. And yeah, they they share their serious worries because we don't, we don't use social media the way Mark Zuckerberg said we were supposed to, which was to connect ourselves to the world so we feel enriched. It turns out we don't use social media for personal conversation and friendship. We use it to display. Mm-hmm. So we curate our lives on Facebook so we're happy all the time. And we compare ourselves to other people who are better off. And then we go and troll people because they're strangers and it allows us to act superior to them. Those things are really bad for human happiness and also they're not so good for human society. It seems so good at the beginning because I remember my husband's grandmother got on email and suddenly she was connected to yeah, all these I think people that she lost elderly people it's a godsend and if they're not, and my mother now it's hard for her to get out but and she has an iPad but it's just very hard for her to use it. Yeah, so and, the and trick so is if someone would just, make some technology that was just coincidentally, really big buttons, big buttons, and <laughs> if you press something, it doesn't go to another window because mother's always just on the wrong window. I have to wedge in here. Yesterday, I was reading a study on this exact subject. There's a lot of people studying this now, and what they're finding is that there are two very different ways to use social media, and whether it makes improves or damages your well-being depends. Are you using it? As your, was it mother or grandmother? My mom. Your mom was using it to forge personal connections with real people. Oh, no, she's she's using it. She's a... That's very enriching. But if you're using it... She's a passionate Democrat, does not like the Republicans, and I think she goes online to read about all the scandals in Washington. Well, so that's the other (laughs) thing. If you're using it to display... Not to display, to read. Or to compare, or to experience outrage, which is an addictive emotion. She does that, but she enjoys it. So that's not good. So it's this... The tricky thing is how do you balance these things? Right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. You've made us so happy. Being you here. made me very happy. It's, <laughs> and, and it's so nice to talk about something with such good news. Well, we didn't get into the paintings, so I think what oh. we'll do is we'll post... We didn't talk about free speech. He's, he's, he's written the most brilliant book on free speech. He has to leave. And he has to leave. All but, right. But I want to post... We can post on our website, femsplainers.com, actually on our Facebook I'll post a connection to those paintings and maybe sure. a paragraph of you describing them because that's how you open the book. And it's so, really yeah, go beautiful. to happinesscurvebook.com and you'll find the paintings and brief descriptions. So oh, you can even better. To those. Even and a picture of your red sports car. Yeah, my red sports <laughs> car that I, that I don't have. Did you like the paintings? I love them. I mean, they were such from such a different artistic period. But I don't think if I had read what you had written about them, I would have appreciated them so much. I would have, would walked, have walked past them. They would have walked by. past they, them. By but I just, know, like a lot, all the paintings there, once you know, then you become right. fascinated. But that, that, was, that was wonderful. That's interesting, because I was, at the age of 19 at Yale, I was kind of stunned by those paintings. That doesn't happen to most people. I mean, I didn't, I didn't like fall over, but I stopped and I looked for a long time. Well, the art that speaks to you the most it spoke, it, yeah. will, will capture you. And, and that, obviously, you had this 
book in you back then and those thoughts and, and thoughts about life. And they are now so beautifully expressed for everybody to... Well, you're so kind to have me. Appreciate. Guys. Have me on... Uh, Save us. On femsplaining. You were an excellent mansplainer, and you made us feel good about ourselves. The next time you have to bring Michael, and we'll dance. <laughs> <laughs> I know he would like that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's awesome fun. Because when your word, your face will frown, and that will bring everybody down. So don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. Now. Well... That was amazing. I feel so much better after listening to Jonathan. I have a new lease on life. <laughs> now, I'm glad I didn't tell him my joke when he mentioned the old age home and sex. Or you mentioned the I old mentioned age home sex, and sex in the old age home. So there's an 85 year old lady. She goes downstairs to the rec room in the nursing home or wherever she is. And she says, I've got something in my hand. And whoever guesses it gets to have sex with me. And there are a bunch of old men sitting in the back. And one of them says, An elephant. And she says, Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have I have one old can we can I tell a joke too? Yes. One of my favorite jokes. Very, very old man turning ninety and his children and family organize a, a, a huge party for him, birthday party, which involves rolling in a cake and having a stripper come out and leap out. And so this happens at the end of the lunch, the stripper leaps out, and she said how would you like some super sex? And the man looks at her and he goes, I'll take the soup. Is <laughs> 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 how would you like super sex? But one of the things, my mother is in her 80s, and one of the things that even before Jonathan, which is sort of goes along with his theory, I've always been impressed whenever I ask her, you know, what is the best age? And she's now in her 80s, and she always says, right now. I think if you have that attitude... Just that alone can carry you through, if you can believe it. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. <laughs> but I'm, I find that I think, had I known when I, when once in a while I think that I am now the age that my aunts were, my great aunts, yeah. who seemed like ancient ladies. But they had these tight, you know, Mamie Eisenhower, I don't know. Galoshes, do you remember? Galoshes. And yeah. So I think that we feel better and we stay younger than oh, we did. Definitely longer, hopefully. And I find that I just don't mind it. I thought that I would have. But right. now, being an age-enhanced woman. Age-enhanced. Age-enhanced. Chronologically gifted. <laughs> so you, you youngins out there, you pipsqueaks. <laughs> you um, ungrateful And you ungrateful rats. wretches. No, no, no. We love you, and we're giving you good news. Gets better and better. And there's science behind it. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. You've got mail. So, Christina, you were telling me you have an iTunes comment you like that was on our iTunes site. Yes, great comments. And uh, one that I liked it says, as a 26-year-old professional young woman, it's nice to find something that isn't laden with vocal fry and stories of weekend bar hopping. What is vocal fry? I've heard this expression, but I have, I have no idea what it it's is. It's upper middle class millennial young women. Either they talk like this, or Valley Girl, yeah, Valley Girl, or they go, they, they uh, like a little, I don't know, a frog intonation. Can you do? Hang it? on, I'm, I'm googling it. I'm googling. What does it, it say? It says, okay, it says the vocal fry register, also known as pulse register, laryngealization, pulse phonation, creak croak, popcorning, glottal fry, 
glottal, rattle, glottal, <laughs> scrape, or strabass <laughs> is the lowest vocal register the lowest. and is produced through a loose glottal closure. That closure. Does sound really serious. Slowly with a popping or rattling. I think we should do it. it to is. appeal to, like, would this appeal to millennials? Maybe, maybe, but I sound like an old queen's woman who smokes. An something. old queen? <laughs> what are you? Queen. Nothing okay, I don't want to that. do that. Let's just move on, move okay, on. Okay, let's moving on. Okay, so this week on social media, this past week, one of the things that got a lot of interaction, which was fun. I, just by the way, we love it when you interact with us. And on Twitter, we're at Femsplainers. On Facebook, we're at Femsplainers. And on Instagram, we're at Femsplainers Podcast. But just like never hesitate because we, we will always be there and answer. We tweeted this article, Christina, I know this is red meat for you, so I'm just going to like step back in a second because I won't be able to hold you back on this. Oh, I know what it is. <laughs> okay. You're like a horse uh, paw. Okay, come on, come on. Okay, okay, okay. Let me do it. So, so this woman called Susanna Danuta Walters wrote in the Washington Post this week of why we should hate men, basically. And just let me give you her description because I, I, I just love taunting you really because I can yeah. just see you in your chair. <laughs> Huh. I'm triggered. I'm triggered. Walters is a professor of sociology and director of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program at Northeastern University, is the editor of the gender studies journal Signs, and probably a character on Portlandia, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, she wrote that in the context of the current climate, she said, it seems logical to hate men. I can't lie. I've always had a soft spot for the radical feminist smackdown. For naming the problem in no uncertain terms, I've rankled at the, but we don't hate men protestations of generations of would-be feminists, and found the, men are not the problem, the system is, obfuscation, too precious by half. So we, we tweeted about this. We tweeted that why we can't hate men is for the reason we can't hate all women or any other demographic group based on stupid prejudices. Yeah, and two, because bigotry. who else will open tight jars and carry us across puddles? I know. And, and <laughs> make out the recycling. Well, what, somebody said, somebody on Twitter said, spiders. Don't forget spiders. Spiders. Spiders are good for yes, spiders. and mice. And then somebody quoted, hello, Dolly. And practically speaking, who can you turn to when the plumbing is leaking? Well, exactly. Who comes when you call for any problem like that? But anyway, the problem is, all right, I'm just going to say this. Go for it, girl. This professor doesn't necessarily... No, I'm just, she does not represent most women. She doesn't even represent most feminists, but she's a, what I would call a toxic feminist. <laughs> and a toxic style of feminism is ascendant in the academy. Keep in mind. Is it really ascendant? Is it that pervasive? That It is pervasive in gender studies. Mm -hmm. In gender studies, the extreme is the mean. You see, she's the editor of signs. It is one of the oldest and most, I don't know. And that's not a road. <laughs> manual to prepare for your driver's license no. or right? No? No, I don't even know why, what the meaning, oh, I'm sure it has all sorts of POMO meetings, but no, she's the editor of one of the leading feminist journals. She runs a program and she is openly hostile to men, all men. And it's, it's just so obviously ludicrous to say that some men are monsters, therefore all men are monsters. That's the logic of a bigot. Well, Christina, you, you were telling me before we started recording about this recent case of a woman being charged. Oh, yes. Can you, can you It appears you to be the case 
that a star of lit crit gender theory at NYU has been charged with sexual harassment, but she's friends with Judith Butler and all of the sort of celebrity feminists, and like 20 of them, Gayatri Spivak, they signed a letter saying that you have charged our friend. She is an eminent scholar. She is well-respected. You should know Harvey what Weinstein you're... was an eminent producer. It, it is. <laughs> now, some people are saying, oh, it has to be a hoax. But it's been on a respectable website, the letter, for a couple of days, and none of them have denied that they wrote it. What and was the actual bottom charge? We don't know the charges. We only know oh, that... Oh, so it's even mysterious. It's... Yes, except that in this letter, apparently written by Judith Butler, that's mm-hmm. what this philosophy website says, that Judith Butler... You're just on all the hot websites. I'm on these really good <laughs> websites. Philosophy, philosophy Brian Leiter. <laughs> apparently, they claim in the letter that her accuser, in so many words, they say she's a malicious liar. But is there any sexual? We don't know the charges. What we do know is that Judith Butler and her cohorts created the theories. Mm-hmm. They created the theories that make it possible to deny the importance of due process, deny the presumption of innocence. And now they have been hoist on their own petard. It's kind of the Frankenstein problem. They have created, and I'm sure that by now they're frightened of their own graduate students <laughs> because they are rather fanatical, but now they're being ensnared by the very theories that they promoted. So we'll see where this... that would be a kind of happy ending, I think. I feel sorry for this professor who's been charged because it's possible that there... I mean, because I do believe there can be vindictive, irrational accusers. Mm -hmm. But Judith Butler has never protested these kangaroo courts. She's never... It's kind of an Alice in Wonderland situation. Yes. Right? Where and, And now everybody is off with their heads for everybody. Yeah, or... And it's also a little bit of Animal Farm, because in this letter, obviously, some sexual harassers are more equal than others Mm -hmm. and deserve respect and to be credited with complexity and humanity and nuance. So that's what they're calling for their friend. But where were they when all these other professors were accused and all these other students have had their lives destroyed? Right. And you can't have that same outrage towards... Hollywood producers, even of the, I mean, Harvey Weinstein, I think, would be generally regarded as a monster by everyone. But these milder offenders, you know, that aren't accorded any humanity or comeback, maybe they shouldn't. Who knows? We have to work that through. But has there been, Christina, in your experience studying academia, have there been lesbian issues? Have there been women harassing other women? Well, that's happened now. It started at Brandeis. It was gay guys that accused each other, and one of them was expelled. Mm -hmm. And it was a long-term relationship, but he wasn't sure that the last three times they were together was entirely consensual. And but anyway, this young man sued, and I think the case was successful, but I I don't know. But it was horrendous kangaroo court proceedings. And this gay guy was subject to the injustice. So now, once you introduce this kind of anarchy Mm -hmm. into the system, Anybody can be caught up in it. And now apparently an NYU feminist literary critic has been charged. So we'll see what happens. We did get something through our website. Oh, also you can contact us through femsplainers.com, where she said, this was from a woman named Emma. Thank you, Emma. She said, Dear Femsplainers, I love, love your podcast. I'm really excited about your interview with Ayan, which we've already had. 
But she said, would you consider inviting people of opposite sides? So I would say to you, Susanna Danuta Walters. Oh, the man hater. (laughs) I would have her on. on. Come on. I would talk to her. Can't we settle this over a pint? Yes. (laughs) What's her favorite cocktail? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Let's find out. All right. Susanna. Susanna, this is to you. Anyway, that's it. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.